0: I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at Consminds, at C O N S M I N D S. For episode 83, we read Beyond Originalism, an article by Adrian Vermule, published in 2020. Adrian
1: Vermule was born in 1968 to a family of scholars. He graduated from Harvard College in 1990 and Harvard Law School in 1993. Following a clerkship with Antonin Scalia, Vermeule became a professor of law at the University of Chicago in 1998 and then professor at Harvard in 2006, where he remains today. Raised an Episcopalian, Vermeule converted to Catholicism in 2016. But before we get into that, let's talk about another podcast. Conservative ideas are no longer welcome on those college campuses, or anywhere else for that matter. If you're a conservative college student or professor, then you already know what I'm talking about. If you're hungry for great conservative ideas, look no further. Check out Conservative Conversations with ISI podcast today. Presented by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, this podcast is a series of in-depth conversations with leading thinkers, the most important issues facing conservatism. Join Johnny Bertka and James Davenport and dig into the world of conservative ideas with thinkers like William F. Buckley Jr., Richard Weaver, Yuval Levin, Ross Douthat, and more. To listen, go to isi.org slash
0: podcasts
1: or any of your favorite podcast platforms.
0: All right, so Adrian Vermeule released this essay last year and it created quite a stir in conservative circles, particularly conservative legal circles. He says, in recent years, allegiance to the constitutional theory known as originalism has become all but mandatory for American legal conservatives. Every justice and almost every judge nominated by recent Republican administrations has pledged adherence to the faith. Originalism is the view that constitutional meaning was fixed at the time of the Constitution's enactment. That's in simple terms. But he says, originalism has now outlived its utility and has become an obstacle to the development of a robust, substantively conservative approach to constitutional law and interpretation. He says such an approach, what he calls common good constitutionalism, that's what we're going to learn about today should be based on the principles that government helps direct persons, associations, and society generally toward the common good, and that strong rule in the interest of attaining the common good is entirely legitimate. So we have this constitutional jurisprudence that we sort of refer to as originalism. It was more or less brought to the forefront, and you could almost even say invented by Justice Antonin Scalia. We've talked about this before, in an earlier episode a book written by uh, Antonin Scalia I think in our first se- first season or second season I, th- I think that's right yeah so go back and listen to that a little more if you want to learn a little bit more about originalism but the idea is basically that there there was an original meaning to the words written in the constitution that was more or less fixed at the time and the idea really more or less behind it is being a conservative means as as Kyle said many times like do this but not so, not too much and what originalism kind of served uh, the purpose of sort of creating a, a static constitution or at least putting a, a fence line around it make cre- creating some limitations because over the years, especially since you know during the 1960s and 70s when there was a, a decidedly liberal court majority, well so there's plenty of writing and reading within the text, that you can interpret a thousand different ways. And if you can interpret it a thousand different ways, then you can take it in a thousand different directions and basically read in whatever it is you want to say and and come to whatever conclusion you want to come to. And we still have maybe not all the liberal justices, but uh, a couple of them at least have no qualms whatsoever in the on the current court, have no qualms with reading in their own interpretations so that they can get to the Outcome that they seek. And originalism is really an attempt to say, no, there is some fixed meaning. It's not just com- completely hanging out there in the ether, open to wide open to any and all interpretations. There is a band of interpretations that are limited by the text itself. And that has more or less been the conservative position, it's certainly been the, the prevailing view of the Federalist Society for the last 35 years. And what Vermeule's doing is saying, we need to get beyond that. It's no longer working. So he's coming up with his new notion of of, of jurisprudence for conservatism.
1: Yeah, it's a little uh, surprising, even still, to read this. And I remember there was a, it was quite a tumult when it came out last year. And I think if, if I'm trying to be fair to the living constitutional people on the left, it's, it's tough to be, but let's, let's try it. I, I think they're, they're, they're drawing on a tradition of common law where in back in England and in, in the early history of this country, judges interpreting regular laws, you know, criminal laws and contract laws would interpret them based on cases that came before. A lot of this stuff was not written down originally. It was or there was a, a very short law passed hundreds of years ago. And, you know, the things would build on that. And that's and that's how a lot, I mean, in some states, that's still the case. I know in, in Pennsylvania, we codified all our law. Years ago, but it's, there's still that sort of idea of, 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 common law case law, but that's never how a constitution is. It could, and that's that's the problem is not just that that can, with, with constitutional issues, they're so important and so political that letting any judge, you know, squint at it this way and put his thumb on the scale this way means uh, you're just getting a new level, a new kind of politician instead of the legislature. You're getting a super legislature on the court, but it also detracts from the uh, consent of the governed, really. Mm-hmm. Because what, what people agreed to when this constitution was passed and when various amendments to it were passed were the, were the words as they understood them at the time. You know, I mean, wor- words do change their meanings, but, I mean, if you saw a law from 1900 that regulated how many hours a week a computer could work, you would know that in 1900 a computer meant a person who adds up figures. <laughs> now, if, that, if, if somebody said you've got to turn off your machine at five o'clock today because of this law. I I think everyone would say that's ridiculous because that law was the understanding of that law by everyone. When it came out, look it up in the dictionary, whatever was that these words meant certain things. That's not intent. That's understood meaning. And there was some early debates in originalism about which is more important, but intent's unknown, but public meaning, the public understanding of words is There are always edge cases where things are ambiguous, but generally you can understand what that means because people wrote about it and talked about it at the time. And especially later in the years when dictionaries were available, they Mm. typically described things that people understood. So this was, this is a value neutral interpretation point. And I think a lot of original, originalist scholars will, will tell you sometimes it makes for a result that pleases the left. But if that's what the text is and that's what we agreed to be governed by, then what we have to say to ourselves in such a case is the same thing as we say to them. If we don't like it, amend the Constitution or mm-hmm. change the legislation, whatever <laughs> it is that we're arguing about. If if the ruling comes against us by a fair system of of interpretation that is based on the, the obvious and ordinary meaning of words, well, what can you say? You don't like the law. That's fine. There's a lot of laws. I think we could, we could have a whole podcast about laws we don't like. There's plenty of them. But that's not... That's not how we're governed. We're not governed by the idea of passing. You know, we we pass a law in the legislature. The executive signs it and enforces it. And then you don't get to cry to the courts. I don't like it, though. It's bad. You know, that's. Yeah. Unless it contradicts some other higher law. And that's that has served conservatism well, because I think it's in the in the liberal tradition, it's an honest, neutral interpretation theory. It's not about who wins. It's about what's right. You know, I mean. I think the most obvious argument for originalism is because that's the way we read every other written piece of work. Right. You know, you read a recipe from, from, you know, 1800 and it talks about how many pounds of something go into it. Well, the British changed what a pound is at some point between now and then. So you'd know that and you'd interpret it by that. You wouldn't say, well, a pound is this now. And then your, your cake is all messed up. You know, (laughs) you, you read it the way, the way it is obviously meant to be read and that there's no other way to read words except. When it comes to constitutionalism, then you get this other school of thought. That's what's so weird about Vermeule hopping on this train, is because he's and he you know, he pretty self consciously says so. That this is a you know, he says the system has outlived its utility. Yeah. You know, it's just the approach served legal conservatives well in the hostile environment in which originalism was first development first developed. But it's not about whether it served us, it's about whether it was true, at least that's that's what I thought.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty cynical take if we're being honest. Where he says originalism has prevailed mainly because it has met the political and rhetorical needs of legal conservatives struggling against an overwhelmingly left liberal uh, liberal legal culture. It enabled conservatives to oppose constitutional innovations by the Warren and Berger courts. I mean, I kind of said this, but but he says circumstances have now changed. I mean, it's it's kind of pretty cynical view to say. Well, the only reason they did this is to combat the sort of the left-leaning court, and granted, certainly a big reason because you see the effects of having no limitations whatsoever and just uh, reading the Constitution as as a piece of you know common law that is com- open to any and all interpretations. So you did have to put some sort of guardrails or f- a f- fence around it somehow. But I think that is a little cynical, but he says, but circumstances have now changed. The hostile environment that made originalism useful rhetoric and, and politically expedient is now gone. Now, first of all, before we get into what he proposes, is that even true? I mean, I personally don't think that's true at all. I mean, the, the, that the hostile environment that made originalism a useful rhetorical and politically expedient is now gone, like all, I mean... We have, we have active liberal justices on the court this minute, and President Biden is, is confirming liberal judges as we speak that would love to get their hands on the Constitution and read in all of the outcomes that they, that they want. So mm-hmm. I, first of all, I, I, as a starting point, I completely disagree with him there. I, I, I think that uh, once you kind of move away from some sort of limitations then it just opens the barn doors to whatever the left wants
1: yeah i think it's way too early to declare victory for originalism i mean as wickard v filburn is still the law of the land which i think you talked right. about a couple yeah. episodes ago the idea that anything that could be done in commerce is, is held to affect interstate commerce and wickard v filburn was about a guy who grew wheat on his own land and the federal government said we're going to regulate that and, and he said it's It's on my own land. I'm not shipping it anywhere or buying it from anyone. And they said, well, but you're not buying it from someone. So that affects commerce. And that still comes down to us today. Um, The case of Gonzalez versus Rach was about whether the federal government can regulate marijuana. And it was the same kind of thing. Somebody grew marijuana on her property in a state where it was legal, smoked it legally. And then the federal government said, no, you're not allowed to smoke weed in this country. And they arrested her. And there's the same question. Well, how, how is a federal government going to regulate an activity that's done entirely, not just in one state, but in one person's property? Yeah. Yeah. And it was the same. And, you know, the, that case also went to the government like Wickard. Um, so, and, and that's still the law of the land. Uh, the Supreme Court just turned down, uh, earlier today as we're taping a challenge that would have possibly given them a chance to address this, um, but they're not going to hear it. So uh, that's just one case of many, I think, where that old theory of sort of uh, living constitutionalism and stretching the meanings beyond what anyone could honestly say they mean for political reasons, for reasons of expediency, that's still in force on issues as important as commerce and other, other ones out there too. I mean, there's, there's, we could go on. There's yeah. a lot. I don't, I think, you know, since the eighties it's been rolled back a bit and at least it hasn't advanced, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't see how he can say, you know, game over. over what's next when we're just getting started.
0: Right. All right. So let's dive into his, his conception of how of constitutional jurisprudence he calls common good constitutionalism. He says this approach should take as its starting point, substantive moral principles that conduce to the common good, principles that officials should read into the majestic generalities and ambiguities of the written constitution. So in other words, you know, there's there's flowery rhetoric inside the constitution, and he said, let's just stuff it like a turkey. These principles include respect for the authority of rule and of rulers, respect for the hierarchies needed for society to function, solidarity within and among families, social groups, and workers' unions, trade associations, and professions, appropriate subsidiarity or respect for the legitimate roles of public bodies and associations at all levels of government and society. And here, this one's key. A candid willingness to, quote, legislate morality. Indeed, he says, a recognition that all legislation is necessarily founded on some substantive con- conception of morality. So these factors... You know, maybe if it were up to me and I were the king, I'd say, "Yeah, those are good. We we do need uh, respect for for authority and, and hierarchy." And we've we've discussed on our podcast the importance and value of hierarchy in society and so forth, and of course of families, and in uh, your social groups. But
1: mm-hmm.
0: at, what he's saying is, what we need is a court that's willing to read in its own morality of the world. <laughs> And, uh, let me just ask, do we think that liberals would be on board for a new constitutional reading that, that imposes hierarchy or respect for authority? I mean, that's anathema to everything they believe. So do we think that they're going to do that? Probably not, (laughs) (laughs) No. but we're open the gate to once you open, sort of open the gate to legislating morality. Isn't that up to each individual justice, what morale, what the morality is that needs to be legislated? I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of taken away the rules. Um, and yeah, then it's just what a lot of people on the left already say it is. Then it would just be like a majority vote. Who's got the most? Yep. Can we stuff more judges in there? Completely political. It, yeah. I feel like if this were the if this sort of common good constitutionalism were our prevailing interpretation theory and living constitutional where the left's Prevailing theory, as it is, I, I think there's no good argument against court packing because yeah. what what there's no principles involved. So let's just win, right? Right. I mean, there might be principles in the results, and I'm not saying that Vermeule is unprincipled. I mean, he has principles, and some of them aren't bad as legislative matters. But for something a court to, for a court to do, if all there is, if all this is, is a fight, and it's not about a neutral principle, which all of our classical liberal traditions say it should be. If it's not about that, then, you know, as soon as we get a president in the Senate, let's put five more on there. Why not? It doesn't matter because mm-hmm. it's, you're just making the court into a legislature, which is pretty clear where he says, legislate morality. A court shouldn't legislate anything. Right. <laughs> that, I mean, right. That, that, that jumps out at you because I think sometimes a legislature should legislate morality. Most criminal laws have morality in them at some point. You know, I mean, why why shouldn't we steal? You know, I mean, it's that's a moral question. You can't really reduce that outside morality. It's be, it's because it's wrong. You don't take other people's stuff. You know, that's and every country has a law against it. There's there's a reason for that. It's part of basic human morality in every religion, and we legislate that, and that's okay. Uh, it's good, even. And there are other other moral moral issues. I mean, so many of our federal welfare policies. Encourage immorality, you know, and encourage the breakdown of the family. Give you more money if the, if the dad's not around. That sort of thing. That's that destroyed a lot of communities and is still doing it. So that so they're legislating a different morality, an immorality from that side. So I, and I don't think it would be wrong for us to turn against that and say we should give the opposite incentives. That that might be okay, but for a court to say it, I, I'd say, well, now wait a minute. That's that's not really your purview, is it?
0: Right. Yeah, so he's, uh, he uses the example of what we need is principles of objective natural morality, and you and I have talked about natural law before and so forth, but can, if you had 20 people, could could you agree on what ob- objective natural morality is? Yeah, you, you, you could for a handful of things, like don't kill, don't steal, mm-hmm. as you said. Uh, could you decide on whether or not it's moral to... You know, tell a white lie or to be gay or, I mean, uh, a hundred different things where objective natural morality is a little bit elusive, to say the least, if if you're talking about different groups of people. So he says, common goods constitutionalism's main aim is to ensure that the ruler has the power needed to rule well. The central aim of the constitutional order is to promote good rule not to protect liberty now this is a shot across the bow to randy barnett and uh, libertarians and those who who believe in um, expanding civil rights and potentially even reading in an expansive uh, bill of rights and so forth we took up one of randy barnett's books uh in probably also in season two or something so um Mm -hmm. go check that out but he says uh that's protecting rights is not an end in itself. Constraints on power are good only derivatively insofar as they contribute to the common good. So definitely for for Mule, the common good in common good constitutionalism is that the ruler has the power needed to rule well. And of course, you're like, well, what does that mean? (laughs) Unlike yeah. legal liberalism, common good constitutionalism, he says, does not suffer from a horror of political domination hierarchy because it sees that the law is parental, a wise teacher, and an inculcator of good habits. And this next part that he says is a little—I mean, if, I, it, it's hard for me to not read it and just feel like it's parody. But um, but I but I know he's much smarter than me, so so obviously <laughs> I'm missing something. But subjects will come to thank the ruler whose legal strictures possibly experienced at first as coercive, encourage subjects to form more authentic desires for the individual and common good, better habits and beliefs that better track and promote communal well-being. I mean, so this reads a lot to me like Plato's Philosopher King, so we what we need is Philosopher Kings on the court to be a parental wise teacher and inculcate good habits... In, in the, the the citizenry, and it may it may feel coercive at first, but the subjects will come to thank the ruler. Yeah, that's
1: a, that's sort of a Ned Flanders conservatism. I, I don't I don't think it's in in line with the American character. I mean we're we're the last we're the last people in the world who will thank you for ruling us with a, an, an iron rod. <laughs> that's right. You know, I mean, I I saw more people willingly give into coercive measures during the corona pandemic than I ever thought I would. But there were still a lot of Americans who even some measures that were pretty good, they weren't against and let alone the ones that went too far.
0: Well, frankly, we still have half the country that still has not received a vaccine. So, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, right. They did shut down for a very for for a time. And we're over that now. And and now folks won't even get the vaccine. So,
1: yeah, we're not we're not a people that's going to be coerced. And and I mean, the way he's describing it is kind of like the way you you talk about uh, teaching your children rules. And I think in the case of children, it's true. You know, they do need those strictures. They do need the models of good behavior. They do need to learn how to be better people. And when they grow up right, they will thank their parents for sometimes being strict. But the the governed here are, are not children; they're they're men and women, and you know, as a republic, we're not supposed to think of our fellow citizens as ignorant children in need of guidance. And I don't mean as a law can never guide behavior, but for the most part, the people guide the law, and that yeah, that's that that didn't sit right with me, and that, I agree. I. I Professor Vermule is, is a bright guy. I I, I read his, I, I follow him on Twitter. I read things he writes. I I, and I think some of the common good conservatism, you know, as a legislative matter, is not all bad. I mean, a lot of what Marco Rubio is talking about these days, some of it uh, strikes a chord with me. Uh, I I do think there's a place for that. But and he even calls it by the same name, common good conservatism, and it's that's sort of like president bush's compassionate conservatism it's a little different but it's a more uh larger government approach than maybe randy barnett would endorse we we read a another essay i don't know if we'll have time to get to it that was barnett's response to Vermule here and so it's certainly not libertarian but as a legislative matter i think there are some parts of that that can have value but again it's that that feel of uh... Telling a judge to do it, an unelected judge, a, a, somebody with a lifetime tenure who never has to face the the voters, never has to again gain the consent of the governed. I don't.
0: I don't see how it squares with anything
1: in a republic.
0: I think you're right. As a legislative matter, there there is definitely some redeeming qualities and stuff that we should conversations that we should have, and debates that we should have. And I think within conservatism, there's a lot of room for different different points of view. And and to be honest with you, I have. I have kind of schizophrenic views on on some of this stuff where mm-hmm. I agree but disagree at the same time and but to your point like what we're really talking about here though is should we have judges reading into the law unelected elites reading into the law they stay in their positions for a lifetime they have they have no uh, there's no recourse other than impeachment they essentially answer to no one but themselves. And to me, this reads a lot like, you know, right-wing socialism. I mean, what, what jumped out to me is I felt like I was reading a little bit of, I mean, they're, they're kind of, it's kind of the, the, some whisperings of Hayek here, you know, sort of saying like, when it comes to socialism, it's, and and central planning and and authoritarianism, I mean, whether it comes from the right or the left, it's bad either way. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I feel like there's a lot of this that's happening here. You know, he says he asked the right question that was on my mind: How, if at all, are these principles to be grounded in the constitutional text and in conventional legal sources? This goes back to the very beginning of this podcast. We said the idea behind originalism is really to have some limitations on what, how, how the text can be interpreted so that you can't take it in some crazy direction that's really the, removed from the, the language, the, the actual text. But his answer, he asked the question. It's a good one. The answer for him, he says that we're going to find it in the sweeping generalities and famous ambiguities of our Constitution That uh, the Constitution affords ample space for substantive moral readings. I mean, it just reminds you of the, I guess, the Casey decision. Was it the Casey decision? The Casey decision where the justices, the majority found a right of privacy within the penumbras of the text. What's a penumbra? Well, we all have to look that up. But it's penumbra is essentially like a little shadow. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's within the crevices, like a sh- a sh- a, cre- a shadow covering like a crevice crevice of the text. That's where they found a right to privacy. Now we can debate whether Americans should have a right to privacy or so forth. But it does not say the word privacy in the Constitution. They they found it in the penumbras and I think in the shadows. And here what we have vermule going a step even further than that he's not even saying let's try to find it in the shadows he's just saying you know the text is so broad and wide open let's just rip a hole in it and and stuff it like a turkey full of whatever it is that we we believe is the common good i mean am i reading that wrong
1: no i think you're right and he, he he um i mean he says explicitly libertarian conceptions of property rights and economic rights will also have to go yeah. insofar as they bar the state from enforcing duties of community and solidarity in the use and distribution of resources. So <clears throat> I mean he he likes a lot of the things we like. He likes community, right? He likes he likes church, he likes family. and I like those things too. He talks even about other intermediary institutions, unions, guilds, crafts, cities, localities, other solidaristic associations will benefit from the presumptive favor of the law, as will the traditional family. I like that sure that's that's not the law we have and and wishing won't make it so this is um a lot of a lot of uh sort of the new right who talks differently about corporations and and morality these days gets accused of being integralist which is sort of this idea that well i mean i've looked up a lot of definitions of it it's hard to nail down but uh Catholic Integralism holds that there are two powers that rule humanity. This is uh, from an article by Joe Carter, not the Toronto Blue Jays Joe Carter, but a different one, who uh, says there are two powers that rule humanity, a temporal power represented by the state and the spiritual power represented by the Catholic Church. Integralists believe that since man's temporal end is subordinated to his eternal end, the temporal power must be subordinated to the spiritual power. This is a theocracy, you know, Mm -hmm. for the most part. Is liberty the end of man? You know, is, is that the final end we're going for in in life? I don't think so. And we've had this discussion a lot of times, especially in uh, Frank Mayer's uh, fusionism writing from back in the, the 60s. But it is the end of the Constitution. It's to protect liberty. Um, that's, that's what it does. And that liberty gives us the freedom to pursue morality as we see it. So I, I think the way Mayer put it in the one book we read a few episodes ago, was that as a moral matter, the end is virtue. But as in a, as a legal matter, the end is liberty. Those two really can't meet. Part of what makes me question Catholic integralism in the United States of America is Catholics are a minority in this country. So I, I don't know why any Catholic scholar, as much as he loves his religion, thinks that it would be the one to run things here when most of the people do not subscribe to it. Right. That, it's a it's a very weird I can understand it in Italy you know and it was kind of the case in Ireland until the 80s that this that church teachings were very heavily influential on the government because that was a, a very Catholic country and there are other places too I mean France before the revolution but you know you don't find many examples in in modern life and those that you do find are all actually Catholic countries unlike this one so it's a it's a weird I mean why? You could pick any sect and, and say, well, their principles should prevail. But this is, I mean, this is the nature of pluralism, right? We, we each have our ideas of where we're supposed to be going, but we don't impose them on other people. And that's become so much a part of the American character. It's hard to see an America that doesn't believe that.
0: Yeah. We, we, so we had a similar conversation uh, a year or two ago when we had an episode on So Rabamari And uh, against David Frenchism, so they had essays back and forth to each other. And I'll be the first to admit that at that time, a lot of that conversation was completely new to me. So, so maybe it isn't the most sophisticated podcast we've ever done. But I don't think my views have really changed, even though I have a better sense for this movement because it is gaining steam. I mean, Catholic uh, integralism among Catholics is really starting to pick up steam it feels like to me yeah maybe online i don't know <laughs> i don't feel like i've never met anybody in real life who says it yeah that, that that could be but uh you know yeah like first things is a is a good example and you're, well, you're probably yeah. right and uh you're, i mean you're probably right but still among uh s- some quarters of uh, catholic elites for sure uh it's it's a it seems like a pretty live conversation but I, I quickly come to the same conclusion that you do. Now, I, I spent a lot of time in Salt Lake City, and and in Utah, obviously, the, the religion is different. <laughs> you know, Latter-day mm-hmm. Saints. And so I believe that, uh, you know, folks in Utah would be much more oriented towards a, a Mormon integralism, right? Which is may is similar, but it's not going to be the same. And yeah. uh, I know you're Episcopalian, and should we have a, an Episcopalian sort of uh, integralism? See, it it doesn't quite work and i mean this is the the value of the of a constitution of of liberties and rights which allows us to live together and uh, because nobody is a majority really um i mean in the past there have there have been different majorities either nationwide or more uh, more relevant would be uh, you know statewide and so forth but i mean even in utah the the rule of of the Latter-day Saint church, the influence in politics has waned, you know, by orders of magnitude in the in the last 20, 30 years. Um, so things have changed there, but nobody on the left I, that I can imagine would be interested in a, a kind of a Catholic concept. So, so to, to your point, and you made this to me off the, off the, before the podcast as well, sort of like, it's pretty risky because (laughs) because you're a minority and the chances that kind of your conception of the common good is just really unlikely to be the one that prevails. (laughs) So you're putting yourself in a really vulnerable position. Yeah.
1: When you, when you're making the court into a legislature,
0: an unelected one, but still one that has to
1: get there to begin with, who's going to put people on that court who believe, well, they're pretty far out views. I mean, our, there are people in the court with pretty far out views legally, but they're not trying to impose a particular religion or even something that is common to a bunch of religions. It's, I mean, it's, it's just hard to imagine. And it, I think it's, like I said, it's at odds with the American character to be told what's right and what's wrong in it as a moral matter by whether it be a president, a, a governor, or especially a, a judge. Now there was a, there's certainly room to, I think, reestablish the sort of community standards that we used to have that, but that, that can't come from imposition by law professors and judges, because these things have to come with trust. I think when you, and we've talked so often about the decline of institutions and, and the, the problem is those institutions could impose standards on their people and the, you know, the, peop, the people they serve, the people who were members of them, the people in the community because those institutions were made of locally respected people and they were respected because they did things that were important in the community. They, Mm -hmm. they, they helped if, if there was a charity to help the poor, they actually helped the poor. If it was a, a, if it was a school or college, they educated the people and they ran a good institution and there was no shenanigans. There was, you know, everything was above board. And if it wasn't, then that institution would lose respect. And there were always people who, did that even in the old days. I mean it wasn't like nobody was crooked back then, but now with with so many things being nationalized and, and centralized in Washington, we don't have that we don't have the room for those small institutions to grow and gain that respect. So who's going to impose morality? Uh, the Supreme Court? I don't think so. I mean, I yeah. think th- the court is still the most respected branch of government, but it's still not that respected. <laughs> so I don't I don't think anyone's going to change his way of living. Because a judge says, you know what, that libertarian conceptions of property rights will have to go. Like, well, that's that's not going to change my mind, pal. And that's again, I don't. Maybe there's something we're missing. I don't mean to disrespect Professor Vermeule here, because I do I do think he is a leading scholar. Although he was never an originalist, he was always a leading conservative scholar. So maybe this is. And I think after this came out, he said that it was, you know, a thought experiment, whatever it, it goes, I think, far beyond what could be called conservative in the American tradition. It gets into a sort of old European conservatism that I don't think has a home here.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's one last head scratcher that I want to make sure that we read because um, to that point about being conservative, like you tell me whether this sounds conservative. Common good conservative uh, constitutionalism will favor a powerful presidency. Okay, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Ruling over a powerful bureaucracy. Well, wait a second. The bureaucracy will be seen not as an enemy, but as the strong hand of legitimate rule. The state is to be entrusted with the authority to protect the populace from the vagaries and injustices of market forces. You, you raised a few of these um, points. From employers and from corporate exploitation destruction of the natural environment. So in other words, he's setting up a, a benevolent bureaucracy, which almost by definition is just the farthest thing from conservatism <laughs> that you can get. Yeah, We hate bureaucracy. I think pretty much across the board. I, mean, I don't want to speak. I'm sure there are conservatives out there who, who find value in it, but I don't think there's many. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, so it's a little bit of a head scratcher we're going to set we're going to set up this this powerful supreme court that can read in the common good and then we'll have a bureaucracy to, out there to enforce it that's not the enemy but basically a benevolent strong hand of legitimate rule so so sounds like a deep state exactly <laughs> exactly okay. yeah
1: i don't see it i mean the only thing missing is anyone who's elected and that that you know yeah. go from from unelected judges to unelected bureaucrats to, to the people. And when do do we still call it a republic? I mean, the Romans called their thing a republic for years after it wasn't anymore. So I guess we could do the same, but it wouldn't make any sense, just like it didn't make any sense under the empire.
0: I mean, it's an authoritarian... I mean, I, I hate to... I'm not going to make the, the analogies that I know folks on the left would want me to make, but they're not far off to be honest with you. And, um, even the technocratic left who thinks that the bureaucracy is the answer to everything just by, because of, as we've said, twist this dial and pull that lever and everything will work out. This is a lot more authoritarian than that. What we're saying is not that the bureaucracy through, through its, through its uh, technocratic expertise is going to come to the right answer. We just are saying the benevolent ruler is going to use the bureaucracy and all the tools and all the sort of octopus arms to enforce the common good. You know, we, you know, if you're not going to be righteous, then we will force you to be righteous. <laughs> you know, so.
1: And it, it kind of, it, I, I keep saying the same thing as I did a few years ago, when, when people on the left said, we need to give the federal government more power to this, they, they've got to do this and the, the executive branch needs to do this. And I'd say, the president is Donald Trump. You hate, <laughs> right. you hate him. Why would you want to give him more power? And it's the same thing now. I mean, the benevolent leader, we just elected Joe Biden. <laughs> like, all right, he goes to mass every Sunday. But other than that, I don't think he has much in common with, with Vermeule's vision of a benevolent, you know, moral leader. I mean, he's, he's he's a guy who's been in politics 50 years and says whatever he has to to get elected. and Nowadays he can't even remember what he said. <laughs> this this is no benevolent leader. This, I mean, so a, a powerful president and even now the president is often struggles to get to get hold of the bureaucracy. Even now in various executive departments, things are going on and I mean we saw it in the last administration. It was it was hard for one man to keep a rein on the millions of civilian employees of the government.
0: And and to the extent he did, and we're learning more about what FBI direction, uh, does that excite people? I mean, Uh, I think that worries us, doesn't it? I mean, isn't it problematic in a lot of ways?
1: Yeah. He talks about things, he mentions subsidiarity, which is uh, Catholic for federalism. And that's a uh, sort of jokey way to say it. But really, subsidiarity is the idea in in Catholic social teaching that uh, tasks should be done at the lowest level practicable and it's something that the uh the european union supposedly has this principle in its founding ideas too and but like our american federalism it, it doesn't always come through so i mean he mentioned subsidiarity and about local communities but then you talk about a powerful president and a bureaucracy right and, right that's the which is going to win out you know it's not going to work yeah. so i i don't centralization if it's allowed will always conquer uh, these local groups and it'll be subsidiarity as long as you do the right thing. And if you don't, then we're going to run it from, from upstairs, from, you know, Mm -hmm. from downtown or whatever. So this is a vision of a government that I think could be pleasing to a certain strain of thinker, but it's not a vision I see that could ever take place in the United States of America, uh, nor, nor really should it. But even if, even if I endorsed Vermeule's, view of what the
0: judiciary should be and what a bureaucracy should be.
1: I don't see how it could happen in this country. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a great final thought. My final thought would be there is, I believe a lot of room within conservatism to take different views. And I think it's a big tent. It's not an endless tent though. This is probably (laughs) the, the furthest outskirts to at least in our experience, reading all these books, you know, 80 something books over the course of three years. This is probably the furthest out there that I that I could imagine coming from a, a conservative voice. Uh, so I'm glad, kind of glad we reread it. At mm-hmm. the same time, it terrifies me. I hope this doesn't <laughs> pick up steam because <laughs> uh, I just uh, there, I didn't find a lot to agree with here. But all right, that's for mule. Catch us next time.